you have your Bibles, please open them to Matthew chapter 6. Uh, Pastor Jonathan let me know that he's been preaching through the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and he told me on about Thursday as I gave him my text. And I said, don't worry, we will cut that part out. But we will be reading the verses leading up to and after the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and hopefully you will see a similar strain running through them. And why we'll leave the extended exposition of the Lord's Prayer to your faithful pastor. But let us begin Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. I'll read through verse 6, and then we'll jump down to verse 16. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will will reward you. And when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jumping down to verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Now for those of you who may be slightly unfamiliar with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, I want to do a very, very brief recap and overview of the sermon up to this point. I've been preaching through the Sermon on the Mount over the last several months at, at Good Shepherd, and it has been enlightening. But... What is happening in this set of chapters that Jesus has just begun His public ministry. He's been going through the regions of Galilee, proclaiming the kingdom of God, performing miracles, and He's starting to attract a following. People are starting to take notice of this teacher. And so they're now coming out to Him in great numbers, wondering what is it that this man has for us? What is it about the kingdom of God that we have to learn from him? And so seeing these great crowds who want to be his followers, he goes up on to the mountain or into the mountain region and he preaches this sermon. And what we have is probably the the sort of cliff notes version of that sermon. We see that as he began preaching, is a small crowd. And by the time he's done, great crowds have come out to see him. So it's likely that these were sort of the, the bullet points of Jesus' 
teachings of that day or even possibly those days. And as he begins his set of teachings in this sermon series, uh, Jesus is laying out for these people, he's saying, if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciples and be part of the kingdom of God, here then is how you are to live as citizens of that kingdom. This is what it looks like to be true children of God and true followers of me as I follow my Father. And so he, he begins this teaching with these promises of blessings and the Beatitudes. He shows them what entrance into the kingdom looks like through the Beatitudes. And then he tells them that they, as his followers, are to be salt and light in the world. He, he closes chapter 5 uh, with six teachings about true righteousness. And that's an important word that he's going to transition here into chapter 6. But he has these six teachings where he talks about the way the Pharisees interpreted the law. And he said, you have heard it was said, but I say to you. And he's correcting this truncated understanding of what righteousness looks like. The the Pharisee had a very narrow view of what it meant to follow God's law. And so Jesus expands that view and he tells his followers that really, if if you want to get into the kingdom of heaven, this is verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And it's how he closes that, or begins that section on these teachings, and he closes by telling them that you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's a section on true righteousness. And then we come now to chapter 6 where Jesus continues on this theme of righteousness, but He's no longer exegeting the law and explaining what true righteousness looks like. Instead, He's now showing His hearers what the true heart of their righteousness ought to be. See, Jesus can lay down all of the rules that He wants to. And there will be people who outwardly can obey those rules, outwardly can submit themselves to His teaching. And most of us, as we see those people, we would think, wow, they've they've really committed themselves to Christ. They're really following Him earnestly. Outwardly, it looks like they've got it all together. And yet, as Jesus will show us, inwardly, those very same people can be the farthest from God of anybody that we know. So this evening, as we look at this text, there is really one question that Jesus poses to us. That question is, what is the state of your heart in your public displays of religious practice? What is the state of your heart? Why are you doing what you are doing when you exercise your faith publicly? When you perform your righteousness in view of others? That is the main point of this text. You've got to realize that our religious lives are not, strictly speaking, private Events, private matters. Yes, there's a lot of our religious life that takes place in private. There's a lot of prayer and study of the scriptures and 
meditation on our own hearts and just worshiping the Lord that we do on our own. But the Christian life is not one that is contained merely to a private prayer closet, but the Christian life is one that affects every area of our lives. The Christian faith is one that is to be lived out in every aspect of our daily lives. And so inevitably, we are going to live like Christians and do Christian things in view of others. If you are anything like us at Good Shepherd, you highly prize corporate worship. I don't think you'd be here on Sunday evening if you did not value corporate worship together. We recognize there is a corporate aspect. There's a public aspect to our Christian lives. It is not just inevitable, but is necessary and good. People will see you doing Christian things. Jesus assumes and, and tells us just as much in chapter 5 when He tells His disciples that you are the light of the world. So let your light shine before others. So Jesus is giving a command that, that people are going to see you obeying My commandments. So the question of application from this text is not, are we meant to exercise our faith in public or not? The question is when you are in public, when others can see you, why do you do what you do? What is at the heart of your righteousness? And again, in verse 1 here in our chapter, Jesus gives us sort of a thesis statement for how he's going to think about this question and think about all the different forms of religious practice that he's going to talk about. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people, and here's the key word, in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Do you see the warning that Jesus is putting before us? Do you see the heart of the matter that He's setting out for His disciples? It's not necessarily the public display of religion. It's doing righteous acts in order to be seen. It's you go out of your way to pray. You go out of your way to read your Bible. You go out of your way so that people will take notice of you. You want others to see you doing these things so that they'll then think more highly of you. You want the praise of your brothers and sisters. You want their approval. You want them to think, oh, they are so godly. Look at the way they live their lives. You want them to talk about how holy you are. You want them to, sit, to tell their, their friends, maybe their kids, why, why don't you be more like so-and-so? So we find ways to show just how holy, just how spiritual we are. We make conscious and even sometimes unconscious decisions that will allow people to see us in order to gain their approval. That, that is what Jesus is striking against in this sermon. And again, the, this warning is entirely different from the command to let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds. See, when Jesus is, is teaching, it is not uncommon for Him to use sort of absolutes in specific circumstances or use hyperbole and preach in extremes. And 
as he does so, he, he's meaning for us to draw out the particular emphasis that he has in his teachings, and he's preaching in extremes to show us the importance of the topic that he is preaching on, the importance of the commands that he's giving, that they're not to be taken lightly. Pastor Neil, uh, I've borrowed this teaching from him, loves to talk about how the biblical authors are not stupid. Kids, you don't say stupid. Pastor Neil can say stupid. But the biblical authors are not dumb. Jesus is not dumb. He, He is not in the course of one chapter going to completely contradict himself with two separate teachings and two separate commands and giving Christians two separate way to live. So we recognize there is a way to harmonize the command to let your light shine before others and the command not to practice your righteousness in view of others. There's a way to bring those together. And tonight, that is our task. Think the point of chapter 5, when Jesus gives his command, is that he's, he's telling us that there will be times when your faithfulness to God is going to be noticeable to the outside world. And as you remain faithful to God, the world will see your obedience, and for some, that will actually turn them to the Father that they may give Him praise. Think about the the prophet Daniel. This is eventually what got him arrested, right? The king gives an edict that nobody is to pray to any other gods, only to the king, and, and what does Daniel do? Well, he goes back to his room, he shuts his door, and he does the same thing that he's been doing for years. He prays. But where does he pray? He prays in his window so that the king's servants can see him and go and report back to the king. Now, Daniel could have gone into hiding. He could have prayed in a corner so that nobody could see him. But Daniel prayed in view of others as a demonstration of his commitment to God, to be faithful to the one true God. And Daniel's commitment and his public prayers don't lead to the praise of men. What does it lead to? It leads to his persecution, to his arrest, to his being thrown into a den of lions. Contrast that, prayer seeking to be a faithful witness to what Jesus is teaching us here in chapter 6. Chapter 6, he's warning us of public religious practice with the hope of gaining more approval of those around us. Daniel was not seeking the approval of man. He was seeking to declare that his God is faithful. And so in light of Jesus' warning against this public practice of righteousness, I want to ask three questions of our text this evening. Why do we do this? Why do we perform for other people? How do we do this? What what does this look like? How can we sniff this out in our own hearts that we might repent of it? And third, how are we to be freed from it? Why do we do it? How do we do it? And how to be freed from it? First, why do we perform for the praise of man? To put it Simply, when we do religious tasks in view of others to earn their praise, we do it 
Because there is a deficiency in our understanding of the gospel. I'm going to unpack that a little bit. Let me restate it. That when we are performing, when we do our religious tasks in view of others to earn their praise, we do it because there is a deficiency in our understanding of the gospel. There's something that we don't rightly get about what it means to be saved by grace. There's something that we don't grasp about our salvation. Now, what that deficiency is, what it is we're not getting, it can vary from person to person. Each one of us has our own proclivities. Sin works in all of us in different ways. But, if you are seeking approval and affirmation from others, it shows that we don't fully grasp the approval and affirmation that is already ours in Christ. And we don't have time to explore every reason for this deficiency. But let me offer two ways that might suggest that, that many of us fall into. First is we perform for others to gain their approval because we actually have a low sense of self-worth and self-identity. And so we look for validation in the praise of others. Think, if I, if I can get my church to see all of the things that I'm doing, to see how great I am, and they can, they can give me a pat on the back and tell me, good job, we would be lost without you. Well, if I get my church to do that, well then, the more they congratulate me and praise me, the more confidence I can have that I actually am great, that I actually am worth something. I'll know that if they can tell me and approve of me, then I'll know that I'm not actually a failure. I'm not a fraud. If I can get asked to, to lead a small group, or if I can be asked to head up a key ministry, or to become an elder or a deacon, then I know I'll, I'll really be something. I'll know that my faith really is legitimate, that, that I, I really do have worth and value and a place in God's kingdom. I think that this is probably true for many of us here. Many of us have this desire somewhere lurking in us. This driving and deep desire for people to provide our peace through their praise. Most of us probably are seeking the affirmation of somebody to justify us. Seeking the approval and praise of men so that we can feel like we actually belong. That, that is a sin that the more I am in ministry, the more I get to know other believers, the, the more I just recognize that all of us deep down struggle with this sin, that we are seeking the approval and praise of man to justify ourselves. And if somebody doesn't think well of us, we become undone. Second way that we can have a deficient understanding of the gospel, which then leads to performing for others, is that we actually don't have a too low of a view of ourselves, but we actually have too high a view of ourselves. I think rather than needing other people to validate us, we actually think that their lives are empty without us. I think that they need us more than anything. I think how many times have we thought, I haven't thought this, but how many times have we, have, have we thought or some of you thought, you know, the church would never make its budget without me. Again, I... 
That's not a fear I have, but some of you, that may, may be lurking deep and down inside of you. Or how many of us have thought, you know, there's somebody in the church, they're, they're going through a rough spiritual patch, their, their, their life is, is kind of getting turned upside down. Let me meet with them. I, I can fix that. I, I've got the tools. I'm wise enough. I'm godly enough. I can handle their problems. I can fix them. Maybe the church needs a teacher for Sunday school. You think, you know, my, my schedule, it is really busy, but let, let me clear up some space, because if I didn't do it, then this class would be lost. Think, I'm the man, I'm the woman for the job. Think, we think so much of ourselves that we believe others' spiritual lives would actually be lost without us. So we make sure that we take on all the public roles in the life of the church so that we can then be the savior of those in the church. I think may it not be so. As we close this section on why we perform, let me say this, that all of us experience the pull in either direction, whether it's too low a view of ourselves, too high a view of ourselves, sometimes it's both. We, we all experience this, but it is just in different degrees. For some of us, this is an everyday occurrence. It's constantly worried about how people perceive you. Constantly needing someone to affirm you. For others of us, it's, it's occasional. It's subtle. I already said it, but it bears repeating that... It's possible, and even right, to practice your faith in view of others so long as you have the right motivation behind it. And so it would be a wrong application of this text. And some of your consciences are just being torn apart right now. But it would be a wrong application of this text for us to ask, well, should we even have people leading us in music? Should we even be having people offer public prayer? Should we even be meeting together and exercising our faith corporately? That would be a wrong application. Jesus calls us to worship corporately. He calls us to serve Him together. It would also be a wrong application to assume that whenever somebody stands behind the pulpit or offers prayers publicly that they're doing so from wrong motives. Jesus isn't calling us to to sort of sniff out all of the sin and possible motivations in other people's lives. He's not calling us to be a suspicious people. No, what Jesus is calling us to is to search our own hearts. The right application of this text is to examine ourselves, to search out the ways in which we are inclined toward this sin of performing and to fight against the temptation to perform for others as you go about your daily spiritual lives. That is the application of this text. It's not that we draw back from worshiping together, but it's that we look into our own hearts and fight the sin that lies there beneath. So that is why we perform. Second, how do we perform? Well, what are ways that this 
creeps into our lives. I said, for many of us, this is probably more subtle than we realize, but it is probably then more pervasive than we realize. After his introductory warning, Jesus gives us three examples of the way people perform for others, our giving, our fasting, and our praying. This certainly is not an exhaustive list. These are just three of the most common forms of religious practice. They were sort of an all-encompassing trio of religious forms in Jesus' day. So what I want to do is look at these three in order and see how Jesus' words help reveal to us what's going on in our own hearts. And so let us begin with our giving, verses 2 through 4. Jesus says, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And with all of these examples, Jesus assumes that we will be doing them. He doesn't say, stop giving. He says, when you give. So he's assuming that we will be doing them. He assumes that we will be giving. It's the manner of our giving, and it's the motivation behind our giving that he corrects. I think here there were likely prominent members of society that recognize okay, that the synagogue has needs, or they're seeking to mercifully serve those who are poor in the city, and so they would say, hear ye, hear ye, I know that you have many needs, I know that you're needing food and shelter and clothing, but guess what? Let's have a party. I have come to meet those needs. They'd make a spectacle of the process, almost leading a parade down the street with bags of money behind them to to give to those in need. That may be a little hyperbole, but you get the point. That they're, They're making a proclamation of their giving so that others will see them. But... Here's what's interesting about this giving. They're thinking that they're going to make an announcement so they can be praised for their generosity. But these people are not actually being generous. They're actually buying other people's approval. They're not after actually meeting the needs of the city. They're after getting people to think how great they are. That, that's the main motivation in this spectacle. While there are very few trumpets that I have seen blown in churches, we still can find ways to make giving about us. I think sometimes maybe we put the check in the offering basket, maybe leave it face up so people can see as it goes by, oh, this person gave quite a bit. We'll find a way to work into our conversations. You know, I actually give 11% my income, and that's before taxes. We'll work in to conversations about how much we're giving. We'll sometimes fill out a pledge card, whether it's for a church fund or maybe a missionary comes and is seeking support, and you fill out a pledge card, but never actually follow up on the pledge. You fill out the card just so that you can 
save face just so it looks like you're more holy than you actually are. Or maybe even beyond giving financially. Think about our, our acts of service, our good deeds. How many times do we post all that we're doing on social media so that people can see it and give us a few likes? I think I work a lot with college students. I don't know how many college students I've met that join some type of volunteer organization or club, not because they feel any type of uh, compulsion to give of their time and energy. They do it because it looks good on a resume. They think, if, if I sign up for this club and I give an hour a month, well, then I'm going to make $10,000 more because this other company will hire me. Or, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the term Slack division. It's a more uh, contemporary term, but it's basically referring to how often if there's a, a social need or a social injustice that people perceive. They don't actually do anything about it. They just post on social media how outraged they are by what's going on. They'll share an article or like somebody's post and think, look at all the good I'm doing in the world. You're not actually doing anything. You're not giving any towards these causes. You're not giving any time towards these causes. You're just doing it so that everybody else will look at you and think how great you are. Again, the, the ways we perform, the ways we declare our giving, both of our time and our energy to the world to gain their praise, is going to be more subtle than we realize. Most of us are probably seeking the praise of others in this way, in our giving. And Jesus tells us that we are to avoid all of it. We are to let our giving and our service, as much as we can, be in secret. He says it be so secret that your left hand ought not know what your right hand is doing. Now again, I said earlier, Jesus speaks in extremes and in hyperbole. I don't think the right application is that you don't know how much money of yours is going to the church. That's not what Jesus is saying. Right? We are to have a family budget. Make sure you're tithing. Make sure you keep track of where you're giving to. That is fine and good. That is a good way to be a good steward of your resources. But, as we give, a good rule of thumb is to aim for as much confidentiality in your giving is as in your power to keep. Seems like a good rule of thumb that manage your finances well, but as you give, as much as it depends on you, you keep that giving as confidential as you can. If people see you show up to, to rake leaves at church on Sunday morning, well, not Sunday morning, don't do that, uh, Saturday afternoon, uh, that, that's fine. You're there joyfully, gladly serving your Lord. You're not there to seek their praise. But as much as your giving and your service depends on you, you keep it secret. Second, Jesus deals with praying in verses 5 and 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, what's the problem in these verses? It's not praying. It's that 
the hypocrites are praying in public that they may be seen by others. They want people to know that they pray, so they do it where they will be seen. They do it where people are gathering. And like giving, this can be done in extremes. Like standing on a street corner and shouting your prayers in earshot of everyone. But, like giving, this can also be done in more subtle ways. And I'm sure Pastor Jonathan has already walked through much of this, but just in case, think of, of what Jesus addresses in the sermon, or in the rest of his sermon on prayer, in the Lord's Prayer. He, he talks about not heaping up empty phrases. Think a lot of us think, oh, we're going to pray in public. I'm going to use every theological term I know. I'm going to pray on and on and on. And people are going to look at me and hear me and they're going to be impressed. They're going to think, wow, how wonderful. This person must spend countless hours in prayer before the Lord. How, how often are we guilty of being more elaborate in our prayers than we ought to be for the sake of gaining approval? Or, how often do we only ever pray in public and not in private? That might suggest that there's an aspect of performance in our prayer lives if we're only ever doing it in front of other people, never doing it alone. Or how about telling people that I'll be praying for you. Go home and never think about them again. You want them to think you're praying. You want them to think that you're godly, that you care. But you're just performing for their approval. Or think about when you're praying in a group. Maybe it's a church prayer meeting or a small group. How often do you sit there, your eyes closed, and you're just thinking to yourself, okay, should I pray now or should I wait? Should I, should I pray now or should I wait? Should I, am I praying too long? Am I praying too short? Am I praying enough? Am I not praying enough? Am I praying too much? Think how often all of those thoughts are running through our heads while we're in these meetings and compare that with a posture that sits quietly and actually listens to your brothers and sisters praying along with you and joining with them silently as they're praying. One is just worrying so much about what people are thinking of you when you pray. The other is glad to be in communion with brothers and sisters and before the Lord. Or how often as you're sitting there, you're just thinking about I'm gonna, how do I exactly rightly phrase this, this opening of my prayers that people are going to be thinking how awesome of a prayer warrior I am. Instead, again, sitting, listening, joining with brothers and sisters. Or kids. It's a good thing for us to think about. How often do we have opportunities to pray at those same prayer meetings or around the dinner table or during family worship and we're nervous to pray because we're afraid of sounding silly. We're afraid we might say something wrong or we're not quite sure how we're supposed to to pray. We think there's a magic formula behind it. Well, kids, let me encourage you. The sound of you praying is the most precious thing to your Lord. He's not worried about if you get a word wrong or if you stumble. He, he is glad to draw you to Himself. He's glad to hear you coming to Him as your good and faithful Father. It's no magic formula, just like picking up a telephone, talking to your God. 
So don't let fear of sounding silly or doing something wrong keep you from praying to your God. I think all of these examples, our prayers or sometimes our lack of prayer, have so much more to do with how other people are perceiving us, how other people are thinking about us. What are they going to think when I'm done? There's more to do with that than an actual desire to commune with the Lord, an actual desire to seek Him and offer our needs before His throne. Third, fasting. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces. Their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may be seen by others, may not be seen by others, but by your Father who sees in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, third time, Jesus doesn't say, don't do this. So he assumes we will be fasting. He assumes that we'll be performing these rituals. But he again tells us not to do it so that others will see. And this is probably the most obscure of the three references that Jesus makes. This is a practice that has fallen out of use in the contemporary church. But just it's, it's not complicated. Fasting is simply meant to be a spiritual discipline that expresses some sort of, of sorrow over sin and over its effects in the world, over the curse that we're under. And you express that sorrow by going through a, a period of withholding something to declare that God is more valuable than that thing you're giving up and to declare your dependency and your trust in the Lord. Again, and customarily, in Jesus' day, this, this mourning, this fasting, would be expressed in wearing sackcloth. So, so think dressing in, in sort of a burlap sack. Uh, would be expressed with dumping ashes on your head and, and covering your face. You're showing to the world that, that you're going through this mourning. You're going through this period of fasting. And Jesus tells them, don't do that. That's not how you are to behave. He says, actually, instead of covering yourself in dust, go take a shower. Wash yourself. Actually, look your best during this period. Don't broadcast to the world what you're doing. So what are ways that we actually disobey this command of Jesus today? Since many of us don't actually have burlap hanging up in our closets. Well, I think one way is we don't actually fast anymore. It tells us when you fast, here's how you do it, and we just don't fast. That's breaking this command. But when we do fast, think about how we do it. Again, social media is usually a big place where we announce to the world what we're fasting from. We announce, take a fast from social media, goodbye. Or I'm fasting from... Sweets, this Lent, we love to display to the world what we're giving up. Or, how often do we give something up? We have a prolonged period of fasting, and so then we begin to find ways to work into conversations, just how difficult life is. I think, God, oh, it's so hard. I don't play Xbox four hours a day anymore. I can't believe I've given this up. 
or we, we, we just find ways to, to, to tell others and, and work into conversations. Oh man, sorry I can't go to lunch today. I'm fasting. Well, we weren't going to invite you. Don't, don't worry about it. Now, let, let me just think, pause, give a pastoral part in it. Many of you, you have fasted, you've been in this awkward position, coworker comes into your office or a friend invites you to lunch and they spend five minutes, oh, come on, it'll be fun. You say, no, no, not today, not today. And you think, finally, after five minutes of arguing, you finally have to say, I can't go, I'm fasting. Lord be with you. That, that is okay. okay? I, there's, a, there's a heart behind not wanting to display to the world, not wanting to declare your fast. You eventually have to. That is allowed. All right? So the Lord bless you as you do that. But in every other circumstance... When you are intentionally trying to telegraph to others what you're fasting from, that is then a sign that you are then seeking the praise of man. So, you have permission, for the fifth time a coworker invites you, go ahead and tell them. That's okay. But, every other circumstance, we're, we are just itching to get it off our chest. All the agony we're going through. It's, we're not then fasting unto the Lord. We're, we're fasting for men. So all of these examples, we see the same pattern then playing out. And the reality is that the, the list of ways that we can perform for others is endless. So my challenge to us this evening is just go home in the car ride or around the dinner table or before bed, talk to a friend or a spouse or a roommate or, or someone or just talk to the Lord. Examine your heart. Think, where is it that I'm living out my faith so that others might see me, that, that I'm performing my religious duties for their praise. Don't miss this opportunity to examine yourself, and to repent. There, there are few things that Jesus has less time for, that Jesus gets more angry with and serious with than hypocritical people who feign spirituality so they can be accepted by others. Do not let that be so of us. Do not let us be marked by such things. That's how we do this. Third, I want to spend the closing minutes. How do we get freed from this? How do we break this cycle of sin? When we see this creeping up in ourselves, how do we put it to death? Well, I think there's really only one answer. It's the answer that Jesus has been weaving throughout this entire passage. Think if we perform for others because of a deficiency in our understanding of the gospel, then we stop performing by making up that deficiency with the truth of the gospel itself. And again, here is the truth that is set before us this evening. You and I have a reward waiting for us that is entirely independent of what anybody else thinks of us. It is entirely independent of anyone's perception or opinion or praise of us. You will not get to the judgment seat of God and, and He'll have a meter there thinking, how well did people like you on earth? How highly did people think of you on earth? Well, if the, the bar gets high enough, then I'll let you in. That is not the gospel. 
Your reward in heaven is not dependent on what other people think of you. How other people perceive your spirituality. Your reward in heaven is dependent solely upon Christ and what He accomplished on the cross. And yet we continually seek to find the security of that reward in the praise of man. Thing In each of these examples, Jesus speaks of two different rewards that we can receive, right? This is for those who seek the praise of man. He says, well, that's the only reward you're going to get. It's a great irony that these hypocrites are using worshipful behaviors to gain praise for themselves from people whose praise doesn't matter. That's the point Jesus is drawing out. Saying, you want to pray so that others will praise you? Well, good. That, that, you'll get their praise and that is all. You will get none from your Father. It is like sucking up to the intern at work when the CEO wants to give you a promotion. That is how ridiculous and ironic this behavior is. And here's the thing that is so reprehensible about this sin. See, it's not just that we're looking somewhere else to receive praise. That, that is bad enough. That, that is despicable enough that we would look to man instead of God for our reward. But what's even worse is that as we do this, we are actually stealing glory from God Himself. Again, we're going to look back at chapter 5 and, and read carefully how Jesus speaks about your light shining before men. He says, Let your light shine before others so that they will see your good works and, here it is, give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's the role of good works. Is that men will see you and glorify God as they see Him working through you. But look in chapter 6 and verse 2 when the trumpet sounds, what happens? It says, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Do you see the great steal that is happening? We're meant to live out our faith in view of others so that they will see these good works and say, wow, what a God He must serve to live like that. How worthy that God must be of worship. Praise be to Him. And these men, these hypocrites, are standing in the streets praying so others will see them and praise them. So God says, you want to steal my glory? You want to steal my praise? You go right ahead. That's all the praise you'll get. That's your reward for these acts of worship. Let us not seek to rob God of His glory by performing for the praise of man. Let us be people who seek to turn their praise heavenward to the reason we're performing these acts in the first place. And so instead of performing for men, Jesus tells us, go worship God in secret. Stop seeking your reward before men. Go in secret out of the sight of men. And it's there 
that your Father will see these acts of worship and He will give you the real reward. And it's a reward of participating in the kingdom of God Himself. It is that we get God Himself. Let's, again, look back at the beginning of this Sermon on the Mount. All of the Beatitudes, all of these promises of blessing that Jesus says are ours if we submit our lives to Him. He says, if you come to Me, the kingdom is yours. You will be comforted. You will inherit the earth. You will be satisfied. You will receive mercy. You will see God. You will become a son of God. You will receive the kingdom. Finally, in verse 11, He says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on My account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. All of that is yours. All of that for those who are in Christ have this eternal reward secured for them in heaven. All of it is ours. Why? We seek to trade that for the praise of man. I love you all. I'm sure you are all wonderful people. I do not care what you think of me. I do not stand here and preach so that people come up and pat me on the back and say, oh, that was wonderful. I hope it is. I hope you're fed. That's not my point. But we do not perform for the sake of it. We perform as acts of worship to our Lord because all that He has done for us, all that He has given us in Christ, this is our reward for a life submitted to Him. And if you're in Christ... This is yours. It has been guaranteed by His death on the cross. There is nothing that can add to it. There is nothing that can detract from it. It is fully yours. Fully secured by His blood. No, we have not yet taken possession of it. But, if you have trusted in Him, we know that delivery is on its way. So we see that the remedy for the life of performance is knowing who you are. Knowing what you have in Christ. And here's, here's the beauty of it all as we close. So when the gospel security sets in, when you, when you firmly grasp that nothing that my brothers and sisters say about me, nothing that they add to me, nothing, no praise that they give me, nothing can change what I have in Christ. When, when that sinks into your bones... You have an unshakable confidence of who you are in Christ. You know that nothing can separate you from the love of the Father that we read about at the beginning of the service. And as you eagerly await the day when all of the riches of this reward will be yours, when all that sets in, you become the most free person in the world. All of your giving, all of your praying, all of your fasting, all of your Bible reading, all of your acts of service to the church, your sacrifices, no longer have to be to prove yourselves to anyone. But they all get to be what they were intended to be in the first place. Acts of worship to our God. Worship of the God of the universe who holds all things in His hands. Acts that declare to Him and to everyone just how valuable, how worthy He really is. So when you give 
you can declare that God is more valuable than the money you part with. When you pray, you can declare that only God is in control, that you are a dependent creature. When you fast, you get to declare that He is more satisfying than the pleasures of food and drink. So if you want the freedom to practice all of those things, free from the desire to be praised by man, freedom to practice them rightly, freedom and the security of the gospel is where you will find it. If you want to stop performing, start trusting in who you are and what Christ has done. When you do that, then you will be free. Not to do all of these things in order to be seen by others so that you might receive praise, but free to let your light shine before men that may, they might see your good works and likewise give glory to your Father. Let us pray. Oh, remind us again of the glory of the Gospel. That we are Yours. That there is an eternal reward. The weight of which our futile minds could barely comprehend. Eternal pleasures in Your presence. None of it given by what man thinks of us. All of it secured by Christ. Oh, we ask You would help us hold on to this promise. To love it. To trust in it. And we might be freed from performing for the praise of man. Oh, we ask for Your help in this. For we greatly need it. Amen.